Yes, thanks, Rob and Maggie, for leading us um, in a new hymn for us. Hopefully, it'll be just the first of many times that we can sing it in the coming days. I invite you to join with me in taking out your Bibles and turning to Luke chapter 9. It's hard to believe we're on week number 39 in our series, Knowing for Sure the Gospel According to Luke. Um, we will break this up every now and then. We have a series for Advent. Uh, the summer will be probably the Psalms again, uh, but it's hard to believe we're already at week 39. Um, today will be a little bit unusual, I think, in that you might hear from me that this will be a, a personal word. Personal word. Uh, Psalm 119 Verse 81 says, my soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. And later the psalmist says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Well, this text that we're going to spend some time looking at together this morning has become personal to me. But it's not just a personal word. Of course, it's God's word. It's a Word of encouragement. Uh, Paul writes to the Roman church toward the end of his letter about the Hebrew scriptures, but in principle, it applies to all of God's word. He says, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. God's word is many things. Today, I pray that it will be a word of encouragement. God's word is a word of comfort. In the first few verses of Paul's second letter to the Corinthian church, in his second letter, five times in, in two verses, we hear the word comfort, either comfort as a noun or comfort as a verb. He writes, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. I'm thankful there wasn't the English teacher that circled and read overuse of words. We, I, need to hear it. Let's pray. Father, your word, indeed, to us is personal. Would you be pleased to help us receive it? by the powerful and mysterious working of your spirit. Your word is a word of encouragement for those who might find themselves discouraged now. And Father, your word is a word of comfort for those who might find themselves to be uncomfortable right now, not in terms of a life of ease, but just a life of worry and anxiety and fret. Oh God, be pleased to use your word and spirit to change us more and more 
into who we are becoming more like Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Why did Jesus come? He tells us in Luke 19.10 that the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Well, let's ask it a little differently. Why was Jesus sent? Why was Jesus sent? Uh, We read earlier in Luke chapter 4 weeks ago, months ago, maybe a year ago, The Lord has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. In Acts chapter 10, Luke, the author not only of the gospel according to Luke, but his volume two Acts says this about Jesus. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are here at another healing miracle of Jesus. It's not the first one that we've seen in Luke. It won't be the last one. But it's one that Matthew and Mark and Luke all have recorded in their Gospels. In Matthew's version, in Matthew 17, Jesus, we read, heals a boy with a demon. And the disciples prove themselves to be failures due to the little faith that they had, according to Jesus. And in Mark's version, Mark chapter 9, where we read of Jesus healing a boy with an unclean spirit, we read that Jesus attributes their failure to the neglect of prayer. Here in Luke 9, in the verses that we're going to look at, Luke doesn't draw attention to the inability of the disciples as much as to the ability of Jesus. Not the failure of the disciples, but the success of the Savior. Listen now as I read. Luke 37 through the first part of verse 43. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, Oh, faithless and twisted generation. How long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. 
While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. Well, I believe that there is comfort in this passage. I know there's comfort for me. And I pray and hope that there will be comfort for you as well, no matter what situation you find yourself in today. I believe comfort is found here And it can be found in the context of the miracle, the character of the Father, and the compassion of Jesus Christ. Comfort from the context of the miracle. When is this taking place? Immediately after the transfiguration, uh, both Matthew, but especially Mark, puts a lot more words in it. But but Luke has simplified his portrayal here. He's he's making a direct uh, connection between the transfiguration and where this miracle takes place. Remember earlier in Luke, the father spoke at the time of Jesus's baptism and last week, the father spoke on the Mount of Transfiguration, told the three apostles to listen to Jesus. The baptism of Jesus was a time of glory. And where did Jesus go after his baptism? Into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Jesus overcame evil following the glory of his baptism. And here, We move from the glory of the transfiguration to the confrontation with evil. Immediately from the mountain to below, to the valley, to the plain. Indeed, where? This miracle is taking place not on the mountain, but rather down from the mountain. You see... Life for you and for me is not lived on the mountain. Oh, yes, Peter wanted to stay on the mountain. He wanted to put up three shelters. He thought it was good. We know that he didn't know what he was talking about. He wanted to just keep the glory for a little bit longer. But mountaintop experiences don't last. God's glory, Luke is wanting us to sit here and see, is is not only displayed in heaven above, but on earth below. I I need to hear that. You, You need to hear that. God's glory is not just up above, it's down here below in the rough and tumble, messed up, difficulty, frustrating. Things don't work right, things break side of life that we all live in. When does it happen? Right after the transfiguration. And where? Down 
down the mountain. And among whom, this miracle is taking place among whom, listen to how Jesus characterizes it, a faithless and twisted generation. Echoes of the wilderness experience. We read about in Deuteronomy 32. Who's Jesus thinking is this faithless and twisted generation? Well, some people say it's the disciples. Some people say it's the crowds. I don't think it can be distinguished. It's all. When we will read at the end that all were astonished. This is a faithless and twisted generation. God meets us where we live, where we work, where we struggle, where our hearts are crying out. So there's comfort from just the context. When, where, and among whom. But not only do I believe the context provides some comfort, but so also does the character of the Father. Listen to this again. Teacher, I beg you. When was the last time you begged God for anything? Do do you think it's irreverent to beg God? Do you think God may not be able to handle you begging him? Teacher, I begged you. And oh, by the way, Jesus, earlier I begged your disciples. Those of you that know me know that I like certain types of music. And when I see this father... Begging Jesus, having already begged his disciples, he ain't too proud to beg. He's not proud. He's desperate. My friends, who begs? Desperate people beg. This father... I identify with. Most of you know our personal situation. I am not too proud to beg. And I believe the God that hears my begging is not ashamed to hear those cries from his child. Look what this father is up against. He's up against the the world, the flesh, and the devil. His flesh. He is weak. Do you think this father has not tried everything to help his son? You know, the the scripture does not tell us everything we want to know about this father. Does it? He's described as a man who has an only son. You don't think he's tried to get help for his son? 
I mean, earlier we read in Luke of the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. She'd spent all her money on physicians. He's up against his own weakness. He's up against the world. He's tried, not, not the world in terms of like evil, but just the world system. Help physicians, others help. And he's up against the devil. Scripture makes it real clear, whether I want to believe it or not, that Satan keeps, Satan captures and keeps people in captivity. And miracle after miracle we see in the gospel accounts of Jesus freeing people, young and old, from captivity, from oppression. And look at his request. You know, he, he begs, you know, I, I, I beg you. But notice what he asks. He says, I beg you to look at my son. Have you, did, did you notice that? He did not say, I beg you to heal my son, to make him well, to fix him. He said, I beg you to look at my son. In Mary's Magnificat, she speaks of the Lord looking upon her with care, with respect, with mercy. That's the kind of look he's looking for. This man is desperate because he loves and cares deeply for his son. My only child, Luke, throws that in. who is being shattered. If you want to go and look at Mark's version, there's a lot of detail. You want to look at Matthew's version, there's detail. But Luke, not so much. But listen to this. Yeah, there's a spirit that seized him. He suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. You know, the last time I looked, if a glass falls off the table and shatters, it's in a bunch of pieces and it's hard to pick up and put back together. And this is the word that's being used to describe the condition of the son. This spirit, this evil spirit shatters him, not shattered him, but presently ongoing. It won't leave him. This man is desperate because he loves and cares deeply for his son. And so he looks to Jesus and he listens to Jesus. We don't know what was going on before Jesus and the three apostles came down from the mountain. And, And Matthew and Mark describe things that Luke doesn't include. But... But the man has already asked the disciples. He's already begged them. And and, and in chapter 1, or excuse me, chapter 9, verse 1, we already know that the disciples had power. Jesus gave them power and authority to, to heal and to cast out demons. What's going on? I mean, the man doesn't give up. 
He looks, as it were, to the believers. He looks to the church and they can't. He, he, he looks to Jesus and he listens to Jesus because notice after Jesus looks around at that, what, uh, faithless and twisted generation, at the very end, bring your son here. The man looks to Jesus and the man listens to Jesus. Remember the, the, the voice from the mountain? This is my son. Listen to him. This man looks to Jesus. He begs. Jesus speaks. Bring him. Bring your son here. And he obeys. He brings his son to Jesus. What a picture for me, for you, bringing our loved ones to Jesus. In Mark's version, in Mark 9, verse 24, we know the man says, I believe Help my unbelief. If there is not a better prayer for any of us, a statement and a request, I I don't know what one is. I believe, help my belief. And his belief, as it were, overpowers his unbelief at that moment. He brings his son to Jesus. He It's an honest assessment of where he's at. He he recognizes that he has no hope without Jesus. I appreciated Rob choosing all I have is Christ. The father is saying through his begging and through his obedience, all I have is Christ. And somehow, someway, I get deceived in life to think, oh, I've got money in the bank. I've got good relationships with people. I've got a job. I've got whatever. But if God puts us in trials, like that great passage from Romans about what does suffering produce, character and then hope, then we will eventually get stripped of things so that we can really say all I have is Christ and this is all this Father has. So we see comfort from the context. We see comfort from the character, not of Jesus, although we could talk about the character of Jesus. We see comfort in this Father. He's just like you and me. And finally... We're going to see some comfort from the compassion of Jesus Christ. Now, we expect Jesus to be compassionate, right? It's part of his job description. But I think it's still pretty stunning when we see it. You see, Jesus is compassionate even when he is exasperated. Now, I was like, whoa, You mean Jesus kind of lost patience with his disciples? Well, evidently you can lose patience and be exasperated and not be sinning. Isn't that interesting? Jesus is a bit disappointed in what he comes down to see. He's a bit, I was trying to look for synonyms of exasperated and they all got worse. 
You know, like the sinful kind. So I just kept it at exasperated. But can you imagine? He's exasperated and he's compassionate. Jesus appears here on the scene like he's a visitor from another world. And he's going to enter the mess and he's going to clean it up. And if we get anything from the transition from the transfiguration on the mountaintop to the mess down below and the glory of Jesus's divinity and down below the glory of his divine compassion. Yes, Jesus is a visitor from another world. Come to seek and to save the lost. Sent to proclaim freedom. Sent to release the captives. Sent to proclaim liberty. Sent to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It's as if Jesus shows up on the scene and everything is going to be fixed. Everything is going to be made right. My friends, when Jesus, through the, through the presence and power of his spirit, shows up in your life and my life and this church's life, the mess gets cleaned up. And Jesus overpowers evil. I mentioned earlier, our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Sometimes we think that our sins are bigger than his mercy. And then we learn that's not true. We know evil is strong And powerful. But Jesus is stronger and more powerful. Greater is he, Jesus says, who is in you than he who is in the world. We've got to take evil that comes to us from the outside and the evil that rises up from the inside seriously. It will will tackle us and, and, and pin us to the ground in a split second. Unless we are constantly aware of the presence of Jesus and we're saying, I am weak, but you are strong. I am weak, but you are strong. I am weak, but you are strong. Help me, help me, help me. Jesus is exasperated, but he's compassionate and he flat out overpowers evil. And notice, this is amazing. So, The man, the father, obeys Jesus. He brings his son. And while his son is being brought to Jesus, the evil spirit is is, is putting up a fight, right? The demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But notice what we read. Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. Um. Jesus, you see, delivers. Jesus frees both soul. He he rebukes the unclean spirit and also the body. He heals. You see, that's one of the reasons why 
elders and deacons represent kind of the, the ministry of the church, the, the spiritual and the, as it were, material. Uh, both are spiritual, but, but God cares about body and soul. Jesus here, he takes care of the soul oppression. He takes care of the body ailment. Jesus heals body and soul. Why? Because we are body and soul. And we are looking forward to the day when we will have new bodies in the new heavens and new earth. A preview, as it were, of coming attractions. And then finally, did you hear it? He gave him back to his father. The father loved and cared for his son, but didn't have his son. And Jesus gave his son back to him. In word and deed, Jesus is displaying the majesty of God. Earlier in Luke chapter 4, verse 32, we read that people were astonished at his teaching. Now we read they are astonished at the majesty of the God. Well, wait a minute. Didn't we just last week look at the majesty on the mountain? I mean, Peter writes about it in, in his second letter. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty up on the mountain. But I think Peter's also saying we're also eyewitnesses of his majesty down below. His majesty in the divine radiance of glory. His majesty in his compassion to a father who is broken hearted and desperate for his son. The majesty that was visible just to the three apostles, Peter, James, and John on the mountain is now visible to all. Remember, Luke is writing to provide certainty and assurance about Jesus. Here we have a sign of the powerful, saving presence of God in Jesus Christ. I want to go back to the expression that Jesus uses, a faithless and twisted generation. Really? My friends, that's where we live. As Paul remarks in his letter. But you know what? That's who we all are as well. Later, when we get to Luke chapter 18, we'll read this. Jesus says, when the son of man comes, will he find faith on earth? When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Well, whether that faith is strong or weak, will he find desperate faith? Because at times, 
and maybe more times that we want to acknowledge or realize desperate faith is the only kind of faith we have. Jesus asked this question, how long? How long am I to be with you and bear with you? Well, for those with desperate faith in Jesus, he'll be with us and he'll bear with us forever. Jesus, only Jesus, we sang, help me trust you more and more. Jesus, only Jesus, may my heart be ever yours. Heavenly Father, thank you for showing us the majesty, the glory of our Savior Jesus as he exercises compassion, as he overpowers evil, as he reverses the effects of the fall in healing. Oh, Father, we believe Would you help our unbelief? And Father, help us to live lives individually, families, and as a church, displaying that all we really have is Christ. And that's and that's who that's all who we really need. We pray in his name. Amen.